But efficiency, doing things that reduce cost, and effectiveness, doing what we think is right, are very different. Managers, by definition, need to articulate whatever is going to maximize the productivity of others. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore and to learn how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Doug Gray. With his PhD in organizational leadership, Doug specializes in outcome-based leader development. As CEO of Action Learning Associates, he has worked with over 10,000 leaders in almost every business category and market. His third and new book, Objectives and Key Results, OKR Leadership, was written to help clients apply what works in the best companies in Silicon Valley. Dr. Gray is also a former adventure racer. He was initially here on our fourth episode, and I asked him back to talk about his new book. Doug, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Aviv, I'm delighted. I don't think I've ever seen you before, so the visual is tremendous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've been talking for many years before the Zoom uh, era, so there you go. Technology's caught up with us, right? That's a different conversation. I have to start with asking, what does it feel like when people call you Dr. Gray? (laughs) At first, odd and uh, awkward. I'm 59. At 54, I went back to college knowing that I always wanted to do so. So it wasn't like a, a, a bizarre step in any way. And my father has an EDD and I have a sister who's a doctorate in nurse practitioner. So there are a few academics in the family. But I suspect more than anything, it was validation, confirmation. I did my graduate work at Dartmouth in the 90s on, uh, in psychology. And I realized that a lot's occurred in the last 30 years. <laughs> Delightfully. <laughs> so for me, it was a pleasure. It was The only way to pursue the research I wanted to do was subsequently available in technology. It wasn't available 30 years prior. And that was to do a mostly online program with a couple of residencies in Chicago. It was tremendous. Most folks don't finish these, but I I think I have more resilience than many. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's great. Well, so let's jump right in and let me ask you what is. OKR leadership. (laughs) Nothing new, perhaps. For the last 50 years at Intel, as you know, Andy Grove and others have uh, looked at decision-making. How is it that we make uh, smart decisions and we define our objectives, which are what we need to do, followed by our key results, maybe three or four or five ways in which to measure that objective. Intel was not unique in this way when... uh, He shared, Andy Grove shared that information. He's called the father of OKRs by John Doerr. John Doerr was a venture capitalist later at Kleiner Perkins, but he went to Google and John Doerr said, hey, we've been doing this thing called OKRs. You guys at Google might be interested in learning about it. 
And the guys at Google subsequently looked at each other and said, well, we don't have any management protocols for decision-making. Our aspirational objective is to organize the world's data. That's fairly big. <laughs> so how the heck are we going to do so? And they have incorporated OKRs into every aspect of their business ever since. So think of it perhaps as a way to articulate what you want to do and then how you're going to measure those. And then to review it on a, on a regular cadence. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So how is leadership then defined differentially once you embrace the framework of OKR? Yeah, it's radical. Let me start by saying that the top-down methodologies that most of us were groomed in were to satisfy a, a manager's expectations. For instance, key, key performance indicators or management by objectives. These are things written by your boss, traditionally. For those in, in the academic world, a professor articulates whatever the course requirements are and you meet those objectives. For a father or a parent, you articulate what you want your child to become or grow into. Well, in contrast, OKRs are written by everyone in a family or team or organization. They're articulated by those folks, not because they're there to appease the boss. It's not a vertical structure. It's a networked or matrixed model, which implies that everyone has accountability, transparency, and agency, which is defined as a sense of control, self-control, and capacity for controlling your, your future, creating a new future a topic that's important to you and me. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. So it's radical. Okay, so let's just take one step back and ask, why should we practice OKR? In, in other words, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Yeah, to me, those are two separate questions. I think the why is about the need to organize our resources so we can align a team and focus on an outcome. Not an operational objective, but an aspirational one. Classic example is JFK's aspiration to land a man on the moon in what, eight years after articulating it. Well, at that time, that was certainly an aspirational objective. A more recent example is uh, Tesla and their endeavors to redefine, I guess, batteries and storage and the auto industry for autonomous vehicles. Well, that aspirational objective has driven them to incorporate a number of innovations. <laughs> As a silly example, now when I uh, look for a small battery, it's driving consumer behavior. Mm -hmm. For instance, my wife declared that after years of ignoring the fence and the weed whacker that, that I've had for years that I didn't use, she went and bought one with a little battery from <laughs> Home Depot. So Consumer behavior is driven by the batteries and the technologies and, and a loved one's investment drives my behavior. She showed me how to use the thing and ever since I've used the thing. <laughs> the point, aspirational objectives redefine markets and products. They drive innovation and accountability. So that's, that's one answer. Okay. The other answer, though, is related to the, the folks who are incorporating or adopting or using OKRs. Should we talk about that? Yes. And let's address, as we talk about that, another question, which is, when is it most critical to practice OKR and when perhaps it's, it's not at all necessary? Yeah, a good one. And, uh, and I suspect that um, my response will sort of tie those, those two thoughts together. OKR leadership works well when people require agency when they require collaboration, when they require innovation or some breakthrough, 
you and I years ago talked about experiential methodologies and action learning is a, and an action learning set is a, is a methodology for that, for getting a cross-functional team with executive support to break through. Well, this is a radical notion and it's not relevant and appropriate at all organizations in compliance driven, rigid structures. Uh, the notion of implementing OKRs is silly. Why would they innovate? Why would they drive for public accountability when those silos are required for compliance reasons or confidentiality, for instance? However, let's flip it. Let's imagine you've got a team which is demanding consumer-driven feedback, say clients. We see this in technology. Just as Facebook uses one question to ask their consumers, to what extent would you refer the net promoter score? To what extent would you refer our Facebook to your friends and colleagues? That's the one feedback question I'm told that they use. Well, if you've got a market, like a technology-driven market, that demands ongoing interaction with your clients, a degree of transparency is there by definition. So the question then becomes, how do you accelerate that? And I think that OKRs are more popular for technology companies than others for that reason. They demand consumer feedback. So it's an accelerated rate of feedback. And, uh, and that cadence is not only tracked, it's, uh, it demands that people have voices. The other answer is related to millennials. So the essence of this is it, this is a framework that uh, defines and encourages the specific behaviors that produce the results you hope to create. That's right. That's right. And I don't want to overstate the technology point. I have implemented this with smaller companies, family-owned businesses in retail, and boy, it doesn't matter. I've incorporated into succession planning work. I do with 70% of the U.S. economy is based on family-owned businesses. It's a massive amount, and they lack structures. So let's get to that in a minute. In a minute, I'd, I'd like to explore the different implementation and application in small businesses versus large enterprises. Sure. But to, to address one other thing before that, you say in the book that people are both aspirational and confused. Yes. How do you mean that? <laughs> Directly. You know I don't mean <laughs> <Okay>. words. <laughs> I think well, as a species, we're aspirational, right? We aspire to create a better life, not only for our yeah. children, but for our loved ones. And those dreams and aspirations we now know are, are localized here in our prefrontal cortex. There is some neurobiology that suggests there could be a hope circuitry, and hope defines us as a species. I think that's fascinating. Right. Okay, that, that clarifies. So one more time, let's ground people listening to us and hearing about this idea for the first time. Give us the most precise definition of what is an objective and then the most precise definition of what is a key result. And, and then let's describe and move more into the, the application and the, the implementation of the framework and, and how you use it. I'm seeing on my camera that you're opening your book to find your own definition. Huh. I figured I might go to the source, right? So here's a yeah. fact sheet at the end of this thing, which I, I use as a reference for that question. And I thought I had some examples here, but I, know, I guess no, they're all interspersed throughout the book. Objectives are, are what is to be achieved. They're qualitative. Right. They're subjective. What's an objective for Aviv is certainly different than an objective for Doug. Uh, but they're significant. Qualitative and subjective. And meaningful. Meaningful and purpose. Meaningful. 
Yep, those three things. Meaningful purpose is critically important in psychology. What your boss used to say may or may not be important to a millennial today. As you know, 50% of the workforce is, is millennials who expect to be heard. They want to be heard. They want agency. They want that voice included in their objectives. That's why it's so important for everyone to write their own objectives. Does that make sense? It, it does. So let's build on that and describe then what, what is key results and how do you define these? Because you write in your book that, yes, objective is qualitative and subjective. The key result is quantitative and objective. <laughs> nice so, catch. Yes. It has to be quantitative. It has to have a number. For instance, that formula as measured by, mm-hmm. and you've got to have a number, or the second formula is from X to Y by whatever date. Time is, is critically important. For instance, if you're going to drive sales from 500 million in sales a year to 550 million in sales by the end of Q2, that's a KR. The question becomes then, what are the behaviors that drive that KR, right? So if I'm a sales manager and articulate that to my team, others then will follow and say, all right, Doug, how are you getting, what are the measures? What are the specific behaviors? And now we've got feedback. Now we've got a conversation that's meaningful. I suspect that this has occurred forever. Thousands of years ago, people would aspire to create a better future in a similar way. We didn't call them objectives. We didn't call them KRs. Perhaps we call them goals and milestones and steps and, and such. But instead of them being articulated by a chieftain or a king or some elder in some culture, these are articulated by each individual. That's the radical shift. So I suppose that's a segue to another assertion you make in the book, which is you say, okay, our leadership is a process for managers and leaders to practice what matters. I'm struck by the fact the word practice is there. Yes. I love that word. I love that word too. Let's hear why you love this word. (laughs) (laughs) So the the short answer is uh, making me mindful. The first time we reached out, I I think I reached out to you and I said, hello, my name's Doug Gray. It was a cold call. I think you need a coach. And you said, really? Who are you again? (laughs) (laughs) And you and I over time practiced leadership, didn't we? We had a coaching sort of conversation, a series that was mutually valuable. Well, Why is it that physicians get to practice medicine and attorneys get to practice law, you and I and others, don't talk about the need for us to practice leadership? Leadership is a practice skill. By definition, we influence the behavior of others toward a better future. Well, that implies we're practicing, just as you and I have done uh, informally over the years. You and your clients are doing so in a planning session. Me and my clients are doing so regularly. How is it that we practice that leadership? And I think the short answer is, is that, that typically we listen, we reflect, and then we practice. I adopted the title Action Learning Associates in 97, a long time ago, in part because I knew from experiential learning that people in an unfamiliar environment need to practice leadership. They need to practice a new behavior. Well, that implies that I'm going to listen fully, attentively, properly. <laughs> Not at a superficial level, but at a deep level. In this space, people are highly aware of what listening level three and level four are all about. And soon they will actually learn about listening level five as well. Forward to that. I think we all need it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
which I suspect has to do with listening and being attuned to that spiritual place, the, whatever gives us energy or source. Ah, uh, you're always ahead of the game. <laughs> I'll wait for you to articulate the details. <laughs> the point of this, though, is behaviorists talked about a stimulus and a response, right? This causes that. Well, it's limited. Mm. We listen to the stimulus, <clears throat> and on good days, we pause, <laughs> we reflect, and then we act, then we practice. I think that act of pausing is what defines the better leaders than the rest, from the rest. So if you and I can help anyone practice leadership, I think the critical piece there is to pause, to reflect, and then to explore whatever practices, whatever next steps we could be intentional about that might have value for others. Does that make sense? It does. And the reason I embrace deeply the idea of practice is because it, for me, always represents call to attention that we are a work in progress. Yes. And that, that I at least intend to be a work in progress until the last day. Let's hope. So, so exactly. So you never need to uh, wake up in the morning and think that your goal today is to produce perfect results. But to the degree that you are intentional and focused on what matters, you can go about creating another new next draft of the better best that you created yesterday. And that this new next draft is actually how you practice living because the thing about life is we don't get this as the dress rehearsal for the real show. So we mean practice differently to the way you'll say, well, I now I'm going to rehearse something. No, we actually get on the stage of life every day and in and through the act of practice we're living and through living we get to practice. So Exactly, and through the feedback, don't forget that. It's not like a practice speech or a behavior or rehearsal. We're not shooting foul shots or or basketball shots from the foul line. Yes. We're not speaking from a script. The learning loop must be complete and and not broken, not at the beginning and not at the end, which means there has to be some application of what I I have learned and, and how I have interpreted my experiences and what I so worked in my leadership practice. And I, Imagine that this is part of the conversational loop that must be integrated into the OKR practice, whether people review this on a monthly or quarterly basis. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and let me address that cadence. A lot of tech folks are used to the three-month cadence of a sprint, an agile sprint, for instance. Consequently, it's been adopted by many as the only norm. Well, that's quite limiting. I have clients who use OKRs on a monthly basis. Another one uses them on every month, six times a year, so that he's prepared for a quarterly meeting. And that cadence seems to work best for him. I think we get locked into certain feedback loops or cadences sometimes, which may or may not be useful. Let me just clarify OKR inside the the broader cosmology of of a corporate corporate, uh, operation. Would you say then that OKR is both part of a strategy and a translation of a strategy? Or how would you restate what I just said? Yeah. The traditional model is a pyramidal model with strategy and OKRs in the middle and then the daily activities and tactics and such down at the bottom. We get distracted by the daily activities, don't we? And those are the things which fill our buckets and we think we're, we're flooded, we're unable. We get distracted sometimes by the strategy, often dictated by the management team or the board or our shareholders. 
So the middle is the operational level. How do we integrate the strategy with the daily to-dos and the meaningful KRs that we are obliged to do? I think we need that middle bridge. I think of OKRs as a way to stand with one foot on the side of the river in strategy and another foot on the side of the river in daily activities. Very nice. In a similar way, I think it's not only a vertical bridge, it's a horizontal one because it, it forces sales and operations to collaborate in ways perhaps that they haven't done so before. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So, so very nice. So, so let's now draw the distinction. Concretize for me, how is this relevant and applicable in the small business case? And then how will it be applied and is applied differently when you talk about a large enterprise? You just gave a few examples, but let's draw the distinctions one more time. What, what, is, what are those differential applications? I suppose one answer is complexity, the complexity of impact. In a small business, say a privately owned business, if the owners or the ownership team says, we're going to define the importance of succession leadership in our family-owned business within 12 months, they'll do so. If an owner at a Fortune 500 client of mine says, we're going to implement OKRs in this business, it won't happen typically in 12 months. So the complexity and the scale is an important distinction. Let me give a, a specific example that's not a technology company. One of my clients has uh, some 60% of the auto salvage business <laughs> in North America. And they are responsible for every time you need a part after that accident, whether it's a car or truck or whatever. This is a $5 billion business with, I think, 10,000 employees. So when I work with the North American president and all the RVPs and the leadership program for two days, and I do a keynote for their top 700 speakers, uh, uh, people, uh, leadership team at, a, at, a, at an event. That does not mean that they're going to implement OKRs. It means they're introduced to it. They've got their toe in the water, but their toe is wet and they haven't implemented it. They're crawling and walking. They're certainly not running. And they're certainly not running with teams. However, when I travel to, as I did last year, 10 of those locations and work with the RVPs and about 70 of their top leaders in each of those geographies, they begin to implement OKRs. There are small cracks, right? And the early adopters will pull me aside. When I spoke in Denver, for instance, a guy from a general manager at a plant said, this is exactly what we need. He's an early adopter. He's one of 700 people who's an early adopter. Consequently, we work one-on-one -on -one, and he's posted his OKRs in the lobby of his plant. He had maybe 80, 80 people. He's articulated them regularly in software and digital ways. They open their meetings monthly with an OKR review. And they've got little videos from each of those employees articulating what their OKRs are. Well, this is, this is simple stuff. It's simple to describe. It's hard to create organizational change. The result, this guy had him uh, posted on um, the lobby and he had a vendor come and visit and the vendor was reading them in the lobby. He said, what the heck are these? And he realizes that one of the objectives is that he reduces his inventory because the inventory costs are, are significant. Well, the vendor says, I can help with that. Instead of coming monthly, I'll come twice a month and we'll deliver uh, fewer items as needed and reduce your inventory costs. Hmm. Well, if he hadn't posted the OKRs, a simple act, right? He's got a poster, two feet by three feet or whatever it was. And if the vendor hadn't read them and if a vendor's relationship hadn't been solid, then that cost reduction wouldn't have occurred. So these are examples of small changes with a very large organization. So much easier with a smaller family-owned mm -hmm. business when they've got 100 employees total.
<laughs> and maybe 50 million in gross revenue, whatever the numbers are. And each of those managers in the smaller company needs to say, okay, here's my objective for the quarter. And they'll articulate them across a table, literally. And with me, we'll review them. So let me address a concern that may arise with some people as if they are hearing for the first time about OKR. Because mm-hmm. one of the realizations after the quality movement and other fashions in the second half of the 20th century was that management approaches treated humans too much like machines mm-hmm. and excluded the human factor. Mm-hmm. And so the, the question is, how do we make sure that OKR doesn't become another machine-like view of humans? Because the thing about this is there are companies who worked so very hard to sigma the hell out of, the, out of everything. Yep. And they achieved the highest levels of precision and efficiency yep. only later, only later to discover that in the process they've killed their innovation engine and became fragile in, for example, eliminating any and all possible redundancies. So yes. it's a curious thing. Nature is full of redundancies, but we humans, we believe we are smarter and we came up with this um, efficiency idea of mm-hmm. eliminating all redundancies, which, guess what, works brilliantly for the very short term, but a while later leads to great catastrophes. So I guess the question here, the inquiries is, how do you make sure that the philosophy of OKR is solving to the right thing? In other words, what are we solving here? Are we solving here for near-term perfection or are we solving to durable sustainability? Is this something that OKR will answer or that's a question that's outside the framework? It will answer and it's within the framework and it's critically urgent. Let me explain. You're right. Efficiency and effectiveness and objectives have been three focus, foci, whatever the plural is, for managers forever. The Six Sigma movement is a tremendous example, and you cited that. But efficiency, doing things at reduced cost, and effectiveness, doing what we think is right, are very different. Managers, by definition, need to articulate whatever is going to maximize the productivity of others. Objectives are where we're headed next. You and I collaborate in a very different way using technology, for instance, and a shared understanding of, of what our words mean in this conversation, right? In a similar way, objectives are what is critical for collaboration as humans. It's what we've always done. We just haven't called them aspirational objectives. So the short answer is we need this for societal change, organizational t- change, and teams to evolve. The specific answer When 50% of our workforce is of an age where they expect to be heard, your son and our daughters expect to be heard. And in the workforce, their voices collectively demand that they collaborate. So I suspect that OKRs will become less radical in the decade ahead, and they'll be integrated into those organizations and teams that, that have to be collaborative. Make sense? Yes, you reviewed the five ways that OKR works. You, let me just list them because I have them in front of me. Sure. Uh, number one, align and connect for teamwork. Number two, track accountability, which you mentioned. Number three, stretch for amazing 
And number four, focus and commit to priorities. And number five, agency. Let me pause for a minute on number three, stretch for amazing. So how do you use OKR to stretch for amazing? Is, is this the idea of stretch results or differently? What, what is it you actually do and, and how do you retain the, the credibility of the framework without just doubling people's targets? Who writes the stretch targets at the organization you're thinking of? Well, you said clearly that the spirit of the OKR practice is a joint conversation. Person propose their own and, and then they talk to the manager and, and the manager say, well, do you believe you, this is the best you can do? And there is a back and forth and the, there is a mutual provocation. Right. And 10 years ago and even today, Stretch goals are articulated by the manager or an outside vendor who are, uh, says in pharma, this is what you need to sell. The difference is that OKRs are written and shared by individuals with their teams that are going to drive those changes. They're not externally defined like a stretch goal. So, so let me just raise the resolution level for, for a minute, go specific on this. because So there is a risk because both in terms of psychological profiles and in terms of reward structure, people want to attain to achieve their goals. So if you say, we will grow our sales by 10% and you achieve it, great. But then how do you know 12% actually was not available for you? So that's why people will say, well, let's aim to grow by 12% or 15%. And they begin to build into their key results framework, some stretch goals. So how do you, how do you, how do you address that? How do you solve uh, that? They may, in fact, be stretch goals. And to your point, they may be sandbagging. <laughs> they may know that another account might exist or an opportunity might exist or a merger is going to occur in three weeks or six months. Subsequently, that sandbagging prevents them from achieving the 12 or 15 or whatever percent ahead, right? So I use, uh, encourage people to use the following language, at least X from X to at least Y by whatever date. So if we seek to grow at least 10% by Q2, that shifts the energy. We're not limiting anyone in any, in any capacity, right? Very nice. The, the other least. image that might be useful, because I know you're uh, visual, <laughs> is that when we do a red, yellow, green spreadsheet, say on an Excel chart, for many business endeavors, we've, we assume that, that it, it can't be, that it has to be a Christmas tree. It's got to be more green than red or yellow, right? Well, that's true for safety and compliance and certain maintenance type of objectives. However, for aspirational objectives, there should be more red, like 60 or more percent red on that spreadsheet. That's a radical idea. When I share that with senior leaders, they say, no, no we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and we certainly can't share it externally to our shareholders because that's perceived as a risk. That's and right. I'll ask, what do you think is happening at the most innovative companies in the world? So you, you mentioned their aspirational objectives. And in the book, you, you make a distinction between aspirational and operational objective. Can you clarify that definition? Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think it's an important one because I think it's the aspirational objectives that really define the the innovation and the accountability that we see in Facebook, Amazon, Google, and, and Apple. The Europeans hate and others hate some of that innovation because they see it as a threat 
in many business markets. But let's look at how it occurs. It occurs because of aspirational objectives, <clears throat> not operational. It's not a manager saying, I'm gonna manage so many resources. At, uh, at Google, for instance, instead of having five or seven or 10 direct reports, they expect people to share and post their KRs and have a minimum of 15 direct reports. Well, why is that? Because the process eliminates the individual variability of George and Fred and Ingrid, whomever. Process of OKRs accelerates the possibilities. It, it makes it possible for people to do the moonshot, which might at one time have seen by many skeptics to be absolutely silly or impossible. But that's where innovation comes from. Very nice. How do you propose people can use and apply OKR to the leadership or rather to the career development goals and objectives? Yeah, the reason I wrote this book, frankly, is because two groups said John Doerr's book, Measure What Matters, is, is a bestseller. It's very entertaining. It has 10 tremendous examples from the Gates Foundation to Bono, <laughs> the musician. And it looks at all kinds of ways in which celebrities, big and small, have incorporated this. But it's short on the playbook. It's short on your question. How does an individual apply an OKR to their career? How does a team do so? And how does an organization do so? So this is the first book and the only book that applies the OKR approach to the full spectrum of leadership at those three levels. The reason I wrote it in part is because a number of clients who were in some form of career transition said, Doug, what do I do? How do I organize my next phase of my career? And there's a lot of bunk out there. There's a lot of stuff that's not well validated. And there's a lot of stuff that's, that could be improved and, and should be ignored. So I looked around and I said, well, this is pretty well validated. It's been working for some 50 years. What if you applied the OKR methodology from the technology folks to your career? Mm as a 20-year-old, 30-year-old, 40-year-old, and 50-year-old. So there's four sets of examples and specific behaviors that folks could do in each of those decades of their career. Not to imply that you and I are done when we turn 60 or 70 or 80. However, <laughs> that's just a focus for most we're just, of the leaders. We're just warming up here. I hope so. <laughs> so, so finally, connect for me, please, your study and passion for positive psychology to OKR. What are the positive psychology principles that you practice that you bring into this idea of implementing the OKR methodology? Yeah, it's been an evolution and we haven't spoken for several years, so this might be resonate for you. I've always been an outcome-based person as an athlete, as a person who's focused on as a high utilitarian, focused on the, the time and value from X, whatever energy I put into something. And when I looked at coaching, specifically executive coaching, there's some 60,000 people who self-declare that they're executive coaches. Did you know that? I it's staggering. Know. And then when you ask them, so what's the theoretical construct? What is it, the belief system that you have that's well-validated that you can use, that you can share with clients? They stutter. This happened to me directly. I was working with the largest provider of executive coaching is Coach Source. I, I still serve occasionally as an engagement manager with them, and I do some executive coaching with Coach Source. There's 1,200 executive coaches globally. Well, I'm at Fortune 100 healthcare company, and they say, we want to provide 50 of our physicians with an executive coach nationally 
for years and years and years. What are the protocols you have for positive psychology coaching? They didn't exist. The protocols define life-saving behaviors in medicine. They expected protocols in coaching. So I researched what was out there. I globally validated a model. It's very simple. And it's both deep and wide. The model is called ADFIT, A-D-F-I-T. That led to the dissertation, and it led to validation from 6,000, I think, coaches were in that sample population. And the short answer is, when you assess, that's the A, people's strengths, and you maximize their strengths. And D, defining meaningful objective, which led to the book, by the way. But when we define a meaningful objective, the A and the D define our conversations with each of those clients. In each session, then we'll ask the F and the I and the T. What do you want to focus on today to respond to their energy and their immediate business needs? Have you considered this intervention or interaction? Because evidence-based interactions abound and they're critical in every profession. If coaching is to mature as a profession, coaching needs to depend on those interventions. And finally, I ask, what's the T? What's the takeaway you're taking away from this conversation that you may do next? So AdFit is, is broad. It's easy enough for folks to incorporate any methodology, any approach. And it's deep enough for folks to say, well, positive psychology assumes that we're going to leverage Aviv's strengths. When you and I talked, I don't know, five, seven years ago, whatever it was, you were aware that conversations were important. You hadn't yet written your book. That's an example of assessing your strengths, defining some kind of an objective, and over time with your clients, articulating them in some way that was useful to others, right? So you lean on your book, I suppose, as an example of, of a protocol. In a similar way, I lean on positive psychology protocols and always have. I assume the best in others. I want to leverage their strengths toward that objective. Finally, what is it that you're working on in yourself having now gone through this journey? What would be an example of an objective you are currently working on? And can you give an example of a key result that you have developed to support it? I can. You may know this, but I've always had lists of goals and objectives. Years ago, I wrote a different book called Passionate Action, and I called them Passionate Action Goals. But now I call them aspirational OKRs. Anticipating your question, <laughs> I'm showing you a visual of my list for my month of my aspirational OKRs. So they include serving my clients, generating over 30K uh, per month in, in revenue and 25K per month in profit. That's a, a key result, a measure that I've used for a long time. Monthly travel to loved ones. So I list by month where I'm going and with whom and, and who I will be able to play with. Play is so important. Some are solo trips, but most are with others. And new product launches as response to market needs. So I anticipate, for instance, that people will need to tell their OKR stories. Nobody's coined the phrase OKR leadership until I did. We've got OKRs as a methodology. We've got leadership as a broad world, but nobody's interconnected those. So let's imagine in 2020 that OKR leadership, this is one of my objectives, a worthwhile pursuit for thousands of business leaders and there are hundreds of tremendous stories like this one, which can be articulated into the 2020 OKR Leadership book series. And we do so in 2021 and 2022 and 2023. This is a practice that wealth advisors have done for years. 
It's a practice that physicians do and accountants do. Why don't we do this with OKR leadership annually and solicit the best stories, lift them up, share them with others in a simple way, say books and digitally, whatever is most useful to people and give them away. It's like the chicken soup for OKR leadership. Why not? <laughs> You're on. Sounds exciting. I hope so. Keep you posted, right? Absolutely. Thank you, Doug, for uh, this substantive and uh, practical exploration into the OKR leadership methodology. As we bring this to landing, what parting wisdom uh, do you want to offer to people listening to Create New Futures? I suppose to do what I'm doing now, to listen as well as you can, whether it's level three or four or five or six or seven or eight, <laughs> to reflect on whatever you need to be doing in your future so that not only it's meaningful, but it's intentional. And to practice leadership, to give yourself permission to goof up, to stretch towards some aspirational objectives. Those are what have always defined us. Let's not be average or normal. Let's be extraordinary. And I imagine if somebody says to you, how do you make sure that this framework and methodology liberates you rather than make you too grounded and arrested in your own plan? You say that's exactly what it does. It frees me up rather than constrains me. Yes. And that's why the team piece is so critically important. Teams excel. Individuals win or lose teams excel. So OKRs cannot be done in isolation by you or me in solo practices. They require ongoing account accountability and support. And I bet your daughters and your wife would validate that there has been a family conversation around the family OKRs. Just one, you think? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and celebrations. Celebrations. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Aviv, thank you. It's a pleasure. And I hope this is useful to countless others because that's what we're in the conversation to do, right? Is to accelerate change and invite people to practice. Indeed. 